I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 177. And today is the day after my birthday when this comes out. I was going to say, in release world. Yes. But I just want y'all to know that, if you didn't. I know that future Carrie is going to want to say, I am so glad this birthday's over. (laughs) I am so tired of hearing about it. (laughs) I know. You have a whole nother week of hearing about it. Oy vey. I know. We are going to do the sloth exhibit at the Hattiesburg Zoo, though. Yes. Shout out Jeremy for hooking us up. Yes. So we'll tell y'all all all about that next time. Hopefully, it will not be like the alpaca escapades from last year. Uh, Two years ago. No, two years ago. I was like, wait, (laughs) what? (laughs) Two years ago. Right? Oh, my gosh. I hope. Fingers crossed. No hairy soap to be had. Right? We will be pre-recording, so we might not have been oh, true. by the next time. Oh, true. Because Okay, so Will's going out of town, so we have to record early. So, actually, you may not hear about the sloth thing until the next week. Yeah. So, sorry. Just the anticipation. Let it simmer. Everybody's like, I don't give a fuck. But I get to see a giraffe! Okay, really? That's the highlight of it? Yes. Ugh. Unless I got to hold the sloth. Which, like, part of me thinks I'd chicken out. You're not going to like the texture of the hair. I'm not going to like the nails. I can handle the hair once I'm there. Mm, Okay. But it's the nails that I don't think I'm going to be able to handle. (laughs) (laughs) Now watch me get there and I'll be like, eh. That's exactly what's going to happen. Eh. But you know what we're not going to do that about? Patreoners! That's right. So thank you so much, Jennifer D. from South Carolina. Roe B. from Denmark. Nicholas S. from Ohio. Jeannie M. from Virginia. Chaley V. from Indiana. Hannah R. from Virginia. Kurt L. from Canada. Kristen D. from California. Jen E. from Connecticut. And Nikki G. from the UK. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. We really do appreciate it. Y'all are getting all the bonus content, the bonus episodes, the I Survived episodes, the Milk Carton Mini, the bloopers if you're at that tier. And we hope y'all are enjoying it. So if you want all that extra bonus content, which comes out to be an extra episode a week, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Not to mention, there's other little perks like some extra slices. That's not counted in that one episode a week. Those are extra. Sprinkled in some extra toppings. Also, there's some phone and sometimes desktop wallpapers. That was hard for me to say. And this month, y'all, I am telling you right now, you want the wallpaper because it features the best picture in the world. And I got the idea from Shannon H. in the Creepinati. You're using what I think you're using? I am. I hate you right now (laughs) so much. It was a candid shot that was never meant to be taken as a selfie, and I'm telling y'all, it's worth it. It is worth it. Anticipation. You're, like, ruining, not ruining, but you're missing the chance on all these times you've said anticipation to not do it, like, on thing. Rocky Horror Picture Show? Yes. It's It's like you want to do it, but then you don't. You're like, anticipation. Anticipation. But you don't actually pause. It's because I'm making you anticipate if I'm going to do it or not. Oh, okay. It's a it's a twofer? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, let's move on. It's like you don't know me at all. Well, without further ado, 
This week, I'm doing a recommendation from a creepster across the pond in Denmark, which I had a Denmark shout out Mm -hmm. earlier, but this one is from Nana H. Now, this story isn't actually from there. It's a story of the Screaming House. Picture it. Union, Missouri, May 2001. The Lachance family was going through some tough times emotionally. Stephen, the father, had just divorced from his wife and had gained full custody of all three of their children. Eliza, 13, was the oldest. Eli and then Elliot was the youngest at 11. They had previously all lived in an apartment for two years, but the lease was up and now as a single father... He didn't know if he was going to be able to swing it, and now he was desperate to find a new place for his family to live. So he was like all the commercials back in the day, you know, just scouring the newspapers, circling the ads, calling. I mean, I remember all the movies, the new, like the ads, all of that. It's like, oh my God, when I'm an adult, I'm going to do that. I was such a fat ass kid (laughs) that I can remember being a kid not thinking that, but thinking, When I'm an adult, I'm going to go get a sausage biscuit, and I'm going to get two of them, and nobody can tell me not to. (laughs) (laughs) And then here we are. Well, apparently all I knew was I'm going to have bills, and I need a job, and I was going to be single because I was looking for the single ads, You were searching for shit to circle in the newspaper. Uh Uh-huh. I just wanted to circle with with a red red Sharpie. Yeah, red Sharpie or red lipstick. Lipstick? Who does that? That was for the single ads, girl. Oh, okay. Gotta get saucy with it. Gotta get your sexy going. Mm-hmm. What kind of porn were you watching back in the day? Not your dad's, apparently. I was gonna say, not newspaper porn. <laughs> it's a new fetish. <laughs> when I was a kid, when somebody was reading the newspaper, I would just walk up to them while they were reading it and smack me it. Too. Oh, it oh my make God, them so bad. Me too. Okay, sorry. I, we're such I, assholes. Oh, God. Well, just like I would not be having any luck in the single ad department, he wasn't having any luck finding a house. Until one night he received a call from an older woman, and she told him that she was having an open house for her rental property in Union. They had lived in the city, and I'm not sure if they lived in St. Louis before or not, but Union is about 50 miles southwest of St. Louis. So Stephen and his daughter Eliza went to the open house to see if this was something they wanted to move forward with because the house seemed to be more than what they needed and Stephen feared it was going to cost way too much. But the day of the open house, Stephen and his daughter were floored because the house was huge and old, but in that charming way. If it's too good to be true, it means it probably is. Mm Mm-hmm. They walk in, and it's classic TV open house with that smell of baked cookies wafting through the air. Like, hello, downtown Disney. Or not downtown Disney. um, Just Disney. Well, (laughs) just Disney. But uh, is it Main Street? Yeah. Oh, God, that's so good. The house seemed so inviting, and just like the blank slate they all needed. The living room had a border designed with cherubs classic design and it would only be better if it were do you know uh precious moment yes oh really? my god yes you're like uh i was like please say it please say it precious moments oh my gosh i was that southern girl who had a precious moments bible same girl 
Like, <laughs> I love precious moments when I was little. This shit was expensive, too, though. So expensive, but they were so precious. Just for a moment. <laughs> Just for a moment. <laughs> but all of the original woodwork was there and in great shape. So it really was just too good to be true. Like, holy shit. The only kind of weird thing was that the basement had a butcher shower. But it was just kind of like, who still has those? And who knew those were a thing? A what shower? A butcher shower? Uh-huh. A butcher shower. What does that do? So, like, when they would, like, kill the hog and, like, butcher it, <laughs> slice it up. They'd get in that shower downstairs in, like, the cellar basement area and wash all the blood off. Oh. I had no idea that that was a thing. Me neither. So, Stephen was like, okay, I'm never going to be able to afford this. Like, Eliza, don't get your hopes up because we can't do this. But the price was perfect. Actually, better than perfect. And even though Stephen was a skeptic, He just thought maybe this was finally his good luck and his karma coming back around for him. The landlady gave Stephen the application and then said something odd, but he just kind of hurriedly answered her question. She, you know, handed him the application and said, you understand the responsibility that comes with living in an old house such as this. Yes. And Stephen was like, "Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. We'll do right by it. I mean, Paraphrasing. Yeah. Whatevs. Well, you weren't there. Uh, Yeah. And so he filled out his application, and after a week, he received the phone call from the landlady that he was selected to be the tenant. The weekend they moved in was Memorial Day weekend, and everything was great. When they only had a few more boxes left to unload, there was one car that slowed down, and from the passenger window, there was a scrub just hanging out the... I'm just kidding. You looked at me. I was like, well, I immediately went to like a pair of scrubs, like my like my work clothes. And I was like, they were, did, I mean, did they dryer break? And then I, I mean, got what you're saying, TLC. Literally, you probably would have done that. I mean, desperate times called for desperate measures. I almost measures. had to do it on the way to work this morning because uh, your girl forgot to put her clothes in the dryer last night. Oh, gosh. No, but seriously, the passenger window did roll down. And they said, hope you get along okay here. And that was it. Rolled the window up and drove away. Well, Stephen just wrote it off as, well, we have friendly neighbors, but they're just kind of awkward. Yeah. But, you know, like, I mean, people are awkward. People are socially awkward and it's okay. They finished moving in and that night they all slept in their new house and everything went smoothly. The next morning they woke up And when Stephen was organizing some stuff, he noticed something that he hadn't on a previous walkthrough. Every interior door had a normal lock, sure, but it also had that old hook latch. Yeah. Like my old house did, and that me and Tiffany had to use a crowbar to get in one night. Long story. Which, okay, wouldn't be too odd. Like, maybe, you know, they're just oddly protective. But it wasn't on the inside of the room. It was on the outside of the room doors, as if to keep whatever was in the room inside of the room. But again, Stephen reasoned this away because maybe the previous renters or owners had weird tendencies or whatever. Who knows? Sleepwalking's a thing. I mean, we've all seen Selena Spooky Boo's 
videos right. on TikTok. If you haven't, you need to go watch her shit. It's fucking hilarious. Oh my god, so great. It also this has nothing really to do with the story, but you know, I include weird shit. But to me, this kind of does. So Stephen was a corporate trainer. So basically, he was the mediator between employers and employees. And so he was very logical and looked at all angles, very practical. So I think this is how he looked at a lot of these things. You know, he was a skeptical guy with all things paranormal because it was stuff that just didn't make sense to him. But he understood things that he could manage. And paranormal, you can't manage. The first incident really was in the living room while Stephen was hanging a picture of two angels that Eliza had thought would be a good addition to that cherub border. Stephen had hung it, turned to leave, but as soon as he did, he heard a loud crashing sound and the picture had fallen to the floor. No big deal. Things like that happen when you're not a professional. We all, you know, use some not nice swear words and rehang it, whatnot, whatever. Well, that's what Stephen did, but the same thing happened. Boom. The picture fell once again, ended up hanging it a total of three times. On the last time, he was like, stay there, damn it. You know, like, we yeah. again, we all, like, oh, my gosh. Well, when he said that, he felt a little burst of cool air by his ankles. But again, it's an old house. It can be drafty. And hell, that might have even been what was causing the picture to fall in the first place. But the picture stayed, and it was okay. At the same time, though, he was having these picture issues. The kids were experiencing something weird, too. They were playing outside on the porch, and they had noticed something strange. So Eliza ended up calling her dad out there to observe it as well. The neighbors would walk down the sidewalk, but cross the street before they got in front of the Lachance's house, as if they were scared of it. And they all just kind of laughed it off, but Stephen later did some more, as I call it, field research, and people watched for about three hours, and all of them crossed the street before walking in front of their house, too. But even this, Stephen reasoned away because he thought, maybe they're just trying to give us our personal space since we're new, we're out on the porch, and who knows, maybe they think we don't want to talk to him. Uh-huh. You know, who knows? I mean, that would be Carrie's wet dream right there, that people cross the street and she didn't have to talk to them. You're not wrong. I'm not. <laughs> well, fast forward to after church one Sunday, and they all arrived home and yard work was on their honey-do list which everyone was honestly excited for because they had never had a yard to do work in. They had been in apartments their whole lives. Well, when they were doing it, Stephen noticed that all the leaves were falling from their trees more so than the neighbors. He was like, it looked like fall in our yard, and it's May. What? Like, it's this shouldn't be right. So he made a mental note to check on it, see if there was anything he could do for it, and to ask the landlady about it. Well, what he also needed to do was pressure wash. So he told his youngest son, Elliot, to go inside, go to the basement, and get the water hose. So after some like, I don't want to do it, Elliot did. And as he was walking up the stairs, like he had got the water hose, walked back up the stairs, he heard something coming up behind him. And he said that the stairs started to shake with him on it. He ran up the stairs started screaming, ran straight outside, screaming about something in the basement, and that it chased him up the stairs. 
Well, when he was asked what chased him, Elliot responded, quote, I don't know, Daddy, but it was big. Of course, they all went to check the basement to see if anything was down there, but nothing was. So that started the ridicule from his siblings about being scared of the, quote, basement monster. It's all fun and games, so you're the one chased. Mm-hmm. Well, Elliot was scared to go to the bathroom by himself at night, or anywhere, really, which further increased the teasing of the whole basement monster. And then, you know, they'd be like, oh, it's the hall monster now. You know, that whole thing. But my worst fear of your house kind of happened to Elliot. So when he was walking down the hall that night, going to the bathroom, he turned on the hallway light, but it flickered and then burnt out. And then in that dark hallway, on his way to the bathroom, Elliot had an encounter with some dark creature that resembled a clown. Oh, that is yours and Tiffany's worst fears coming to life. Right? My hallway, light, and then Tiffany, a clown. Yeah, for sure. He described the clown as having frizzy red hair and a white face, but it didn't have any eyes, and the teeth were basically sharpened to, like, razors. So think Pennywise. And later on, it's thought that this was shown to him as a clown because it was one of his biggest fears. So it manifested in what it knew he would be most frightened of. Or it could be that he was frightened. He saw something, but he didn't know how to, like, understand what he saw. Yeah. And so what he saw was, oh, my God, this is what I'm afraid of, and it's a clown. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So instead of seeing, like, a black mass of whatever, he saw this clown. So there's that. But after that encounter, Elliot ran back to the safety of the room with his dad and his siblings. And when they saw how truly frightened he was, they quit teasing him about the basement monster altogether. But Elliot wasn't able to get away from the torture of the entity that easily. It made its presence known in multiple different ways. It would move toys that he hadn't unpacked yet, like a box that would be by the bedroom door would somehow make its way into the closet, or things in his room were completely rearranged. Or, on nights that he was finally able to get some sleep, he'd wake up in sheer panic with that dreadful feeling of being watched, of someone standing over him just watching him sleep. But of course, when he woke up, no one was there. He would constantly hear noises, low whispers, knocking. He was just never able to rest. He was constantly on guard. And for an 11-year-old, can you imagine? No. One night when the Lachance family got home, they found every light in the house on. So, of course, Stephen blamed the kids and probably yelled about the electric bill, but they denied leaving them on, and so he called the landlady to ask if she had came by while they were out, and she was like, well, that's illegal, and I wouldn't do that. I would first call and ask permission. So he was like, okay, yeah, that's true. Maybe we just left him on without thinking because it was daylight when we left. Okay, yeah, sorry for bothering you. You know, that whole thing. Kind of feeling foolish, but then it just kept happening. So finally, Stephen made all the kids go down to the car, and he turned off every light and made sure everything was completely off and how it should be before locking up the house, dropping them off at school, and him going to work. Well, that night when they came home, 
Every light was on again, and he knew there was no way that they should be on. There was no logical reason for that to have happened. And that same night, the temperature started being weird in certain rooms. Eliza noticed that it was freezing in the living room. And so when Stephen went in, he could easily tell that it dropped at least 30 degrees. Then he felt this electrical charge, like a tickling sensation that brought goosebumps to his arms, went all the way through his body, and then the temperature just normalized. But the activity continued. Doors often opened and closed on their own. But again, everyone just kind of blamed each other for pranks, you know, again, You have three kids, all teens, and of course, they're all going to blame each other, but even they would blame their dad, too, for doing pranks on them. But there was one time Eliza woke up in the dead of night, and she heard her door open, and she thought it was another quote-unquote prank. She checked around, shut the door, but when she got back in bed, you know, she kind of like closed her eyes. She was forcing herself to try to go back to bed, she heard that creaky sound of her closet door slowly opening. Her eyes opened. She saw it was open. And so that night she went and got in the bed with her dad. And Elliot was already sleeping in there. So Elliot was like, yeah, you saw it too. Like, I'm fucking validated now. Later on, Stephen did have his dad, who happened to be a contractor, come and look at the wiring just to see if there was something faulty with it, but there was nothing he could find that would show like, okay, this is why the lights kept coming on, or this is why the temperature dropped, or anything like that. So it's called the screaming house because screams were a common occurrence, just out of nowhere. The Lachances said it Sometimes would start with a deep male voice and it would be like a low growl or a low like whisper that would turn into a growl. But then there are other times that it would just be a full on shriek and not just any shriek. It would almost be deafening. Can you imagine how unsettling that would be? Like earlier, I was like, I need one of my nerve pills because Carrie... The dog she's fostering was biting her, and that girl is the loudest screamer I've ever heard. (laughs) And in her uh, dining room, it just echoes, and then it was just so much noise, and I was like, oh my gosh. So just think about that times uh, 50 out of nowhere. Right. I was going to say, and you know how jumpy we are. Yes. Okay, so one night, they were all in the living room talking because that next morning, Stephen was going on a work trip and the kids were going to stay at their grandma's. Well, the kids were facing Stephen and he was like looking out into the kitchen when he noticed something out of the corner of his eye. Well, then like he kind of, you know, when you do a quick glance again and it wasn't something, it was someone and they were standing in the kitchen doorway. He stole another glance this time and saw it was a dark figure of a man. He was solid, but there was like this black mist that just kept swirling around him. Then all of a sudden, Stephen saw that man was moving into the family room, closer to him, closer to his kids. And he got 
midway to them and just stood there for a moment. And then he vanished. And Stephen was shaken, but he was trying to be brave because his kids were completely clueless as to what he had just witnessed behind them. So he was like, hey, you know what? It's our last night together. Let's go and get something sweet. And, you know, he's trying to be calm. Well, they were all like, yay, because hello, sweets. We've all seen Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. And everything was okay until they made it to the front door. And that's when that deafening scream happened again. It was so loud that the neighborhood dogs barked in response to it. Damn. Yeah. Well, when they were all safely in the car, Elliot said, Daddy, the basement monster is standing in the upstairs window. Holy shit. Yeah. And so Stephen looked up and yeah, that black figure he saw was standing in the window. It was as if he was watching them and it was as if he had won. Well, by the time Stephen was back from his business trip, which was a week, Stephen had put on his logical thinking cap and also his, you know, we have no savings and nowhere really else to go thinking cap. So he had reasoned everything away and said, oh, it's a one-time thing. Everything's going to be fine. But it wasn't fine. Monday night, he was on the phone with his mom and the kids were in a bedroom on the first floor. I believe Stephen's. Well, Stephen heard the doors rattling and he was like, settle down. I'm on the phone. We all know that parent voice he used. Mm -hmm. Well, he thought they were, you know, just like being rambunctious, pulling a prank, doing whatever, you know. And so he just kept yelling to like, knock it off. Well, finally, Eliza was like, hey, I'm reading and the knuckleheads are both asleep. Again, not her real words, but, you know. Again, you weren't there. Right. Anyway, so he was like, uh, wait, what? You know? And about that time, that tingling sensation that he got that first time, that electrical surge plagued his body again, and he could feel the temperature drop instantly. And then he smelled a rotting stench that just circled him and seemed to be everywhere in that house. And then that oh-so-eerie-ass scream happened, and every muscle in Stephen's body tensed up. He didn't know what was happening, but he did know that this was the final straw. He yelled to his mom that he needed help. Come and get us. Like, meet us here. We're leaving. Around that time, everything started to shake. He could hear something or someone coming down the stairs. He said it sounded heavy. Boom, 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 coming down the stairs. And he could hear the screams that just seemed to echo and echo and echo. But his daughter's screams cut through everything. And so he ran to rescue his kids. While making his way downtown, just kidding, but while making his way to the bedroom, the whole house was shaking. The floor was shaking. He could hear some of them following closely behind him, but he never turned around. He was determined. He finally made it to the bedroom door. But of course, in pure scary movie fashion, he couldn't open it. He started throwing his whole body weight against the door, trying to open it. And he ended up bruising like the side of his body from just like heaving himself against that door, but it wouldn't budge. 
But finally, somehow it opened, he got in, and then it slammed shut as soon as he made his way inside. But he didn't care. He was just there with his kids in. He said his daughter was basically in shock by the time he was with her, and he actually had to slap her to, like, bring her back to reality, to, like, okay, come on. Yeah, holy shit. Yeah. So now they were all going out to the car, and the whole time behind them, the bedroom doors are opening and slamming shut. The whole house is basically vibrating from all the energy, but they made it out to the car. But the screaming was so loud that they could hear it inside their car. It was still going on. It was still echoing. And they looked back as they drove away just a little bit because they wanted to be at least a little bit away from their house as they waited for Stephen's mom to get there. And as they drove away, they could see that black figure moving room to room as if it was searching for them. And so that's probably why the bedroom doors were opening and slamming shut, you know, just repeatedly. Yeah. It took the house 13 days to scare the Lachances away from the property. Holy shit. Yes. But it didn't stop there, unfortunately. Soon after the Lachances moved out, a new family moved in. They, too, fell in love with the charm of the house Instantly, they were a married couple, Linda Marsh and Emmett Bryson, and their 13-year-old daughter, Ashley. This is one of those once-in-a-lifetime kind of moves for this family. They had been living in a trailer park before, which nothing wrong with that at all, but they now had the chance to move into this nice, spacious home for a steal of a deal. They were both service workers, Linda in retail at a department store, and Emmett in maintenance service at a nursing home. But almost immediately, noises started happening. Emmett was at work and Ashley was at school, and so Linda took the time to start unpacking, you know, just have some her time. Well, some creaking and some other noises were coming from upstairs, and it sounded like whatever it was was moving around, like someone walking or doing something, causing commotion. So at first, she was just questioning if she had missed Emmett come back home because he had forgotten something or whatever, but then no one answered when she called out. And she started getting a little uneasy, but just then the doorbell rang. Probably made her fear fart 100, but it snapped her out of her fixation of that upstairs noise. Now, this is a little different from when the Lachances lived there. A neighbor was actually on the porch. She had baked a pie, a key lime pie, and was welcoming them to the neighborhood. And so that was just like, oh, okay, maybe maybe that was my imagination. All right. And she went on about her day and then went to work. Later that night, while Ashley was chilling in her room, she too heard a noise. She went to investigate, thinking it was her parents. Well, she was right. Kind of. She did go downstairs, and she found her parents at the kitchen table talking. But she asked them, which one of you were slamming doors upstairs? And Linda was like, "Uh, you're the only teenager in this house, young lady. That's your job. Just kidding. She didn't say that. But she was like, I thought that was you putting stuff up or, you know, whatever. It wasn't us. And Emmett was like, oh my God, y'all, it's an old house. It's settling. 
because Linda had already told him about the noises she heard earlier. So he was like, what the fuck are y'all saying? This house is haunted. Get the fuck out of here. Well, remember how I said that the Lachance's experiences didn't end at the house, unfortunately? Around this same time, Stephen started having some weird dreams that involved a man who was covered in blood, and he was taking his shower in that butcher shower in the basement, and he would wake up gasping for breath. And after this happened several nights, he figured that the house was up to something. So he knew he couldn't waste any time. He went over to the house, knocked on the door, and Linda answered it. He told her who he was, that he lived there before. So she was, of course, a little apprehensive, but Emmett was there, so she let Stephen inside. Stephen told them about the strange things that happened to them, and Emmett did not want to hear any of it. But Linda was like, oh my God, yes. Okay, so it's haunted? Like, that's what I thought. Me and my daughter aren't crazy. Like, we're both hearing these noises, and he's telling us it's just settling, and Stephen's like, no, 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 no. You're right. Well, so they talked about, you know, similar sounds, the creepy feelings, and Linda felt validated, but her balloon kind of deflated some that night because Ashley was outside. Like most teens, you know, they, when they're on the phone, they go outside and they, you know, are chatting about how they hate everything. And then she started screaming. Well, Linda ran outside to see what was going on, and Ashley was pointing up to a tree, and she said that she saw a baby in the tree. A baby? Uh-huh. Unfortunately, hanging from the tree. Oh, my God. So, Linda was like, the fuck? So, Linda could accept that they were hearing noises, it's haunted, but she wasn't seeing things, and so she couldn't wrap her mind around that Ashley saw something. So she immediately thought, Ashley's doing drugs. What's going on? You know, she was outside and, you know, she thought I called her. And so now she's making up this elaborate thing and she thinks I'm going to go along with it because I think this house is haunted. But Ashley was denying it. So then she went to, oh my gosh, Ashley is having a mental breakdown. So that just built the animosity up between them to the next level. Okay, content warning about self-harm for the next 30 seconds. Actually, I don't know how long, but I'm just saying. A few days later, Linda found a letter from school that said Ashley had been skipping. So she had unexcused absences. And when Linda confronted her, You know, Ashley was like, you, you know, you're invading my privacy, all of this. And Linda grabbed her by the arm when she went to walk away. Well, that revealed that Ashley had been cutting herself Mm. in several different places on her arms. Well, Linda, of course, questioned her. And Ashley said that was the only way that she felt better. And so this just made Linda grow so much more unsure and concerned that Ashley had suicidal tendencies. So Emmett and Linda both agreed that it would be better for Ashley to go under observation in a hospital. But Linda secretly thought maybe it was the house that was the culprit behind Ashley's change in behavior because she had never been like this. And yeah, she's 13, but she had been 13 for a little bit and she wasn't like this. 
And the mood had just shifted so much. So she was thinking, is she possessed or is the house feeding off of her? What? Well, Linda confided in Stephen and he persuaded her to talk to Emmett and see if he would now be open to a paranormal investigation to see if there was anything they could do, since now it's possibly attacking their daughter. And begrudgingly, he was. He wasn't buying it, but he's like, you know what? Y'all do it, but I don't think y'all should stir up anything, but y'all do it. Stephen found a group called St. Louis Spirit Search and reached out to the director, Betsy Burnett Belanger. Betsy said right away they could tell that there was spirit activity there and also that it wasn't human. Isn't it never human? I mean, if it's a ghost? Overall, she's saying that the house had a more evil presence, but then there's human, like spirits that used to be human. But she's saying that there's spirits that are there, like entities that were never human. Okay. So Q Dibic Douche. It's a demon. She did sense another spirit, and it was an old man in the corner of the room. They used an EMF meter, and of course, it spiked at different times. They got some EVPs, too, and basically, it said, this is my house. They went to Ashley's room next, and Betsy picked up on some really heavy energy in there as well, but she said that she didn't think it was paranormal per se. She thought that it could be from Ashley herself, and that she was creating a poltergeist. But if it had been there before, it wouldn't be her creating it. But But they didn't know that? No, but she could be adding on to it. Like, it's not saying that, oh, because she's saying there's multiple spirits there. In the basement, the energy was hostile. She said it was like a psychic force field. She was standing in a wind tunnel, just surrounded by spiritual energy, and it was hard for her to even move because it was just vibrating all around her. She believes so much spiritual energy like that creates a vortex that attracts more and more spirits, especially if the ones are wandering and, you know, just don't know where they're going or, oh my gosh, am I dead or what? You know, like when we just talk about they're on that black path, you know, they've been in darkness that whole time. Well, if they see that beacon of a vortex, they're going to go there. Yeah. Well, after that, Stephen arranged for a Catholic priest to do a blessing on the house. And both Stephen and Linda accompanied him, but they said he didn't even do all the upstairs rooms or even the basement. Linda said the priest seemed uneasy and wanted to leave ASAP. So they were really skeptic that it would work, but he was like, no, 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 I bless the whole outside of the house. You don't have to go to every room. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Like, trust me, I work with the man. I mean, he didn't say that either, you know, paraphrasing, but... Again, even though they were skeptical, Linda held out hope for her family. You know, like, okay, it's going to work. It's going to work. But that night while they were sleeping, Linda woke up from the feeling of someone choking her. Emmett woke up from Linda, you know, sitting up in bed, freaking out. And Emmett said the words that you do not want to say to someone who is freaking out from basically sleep paralysis. Did he tell her to calm down? No, not per se, but he said, 
It was just a dream. Oh, well, that's just as bad. Yeah. And it's like, yes, it was, but um, it was fucking real to her. Like, don't say it right now. Say that tomorrow morning. You know, like, say, say it in a minute. Not right now. She's gasping for air. But by that time, Linda had had enough. She was scared that the spirits were trying to kill her now. And so they decided they were going to leave. She called Stephen crying because she didn't know what else to do. When Stephen went over the next day, he saw that there were bruises on her body and stuff. And she said that the spirit did that to her. But at this point, she had confided in Stephen that she was thinking that she would be better off dead because the spirits were trying to kill her anyway. And Stephen was like, no, they were trying to get Ashley. They didn't succeed. Now they're moving on to you. And so she agreed to be hospitalized as well. She was admitted and treated by Dr. Imran Shashidi. Finally, by their third session, she opened up about her house being haunted. And she was like, I know, it's strange. Like, go ahead and tell me I'm wrong. You know, all the things. But he was like, I believe you. Tell me more. And so she did. When he was interviewed for the show A Haunting, he said he's Muslim by faith and the presence of the spirit world is widely documented in the religious text. So he's grown up believing that he strongly believes in the spiritual world and all of that. So he he didn't dismiss her, but he did tell her that she had to move out immediately. Like, hey, I know you might not be able to break your lease, whatever, but you physically cannot be in that house. He did a great analogy by saying, if someone's breaking into your house and you're, you know, alone, defenseless, you don't go charging at them. That's what she was doing against the paranormal because she was alone and defenseless because she didn't know how to fight the spiritual world. So she needed to get out of there because she was doing more harm than good to herself. Emmett agreed to look for another place for them, but in the meantime, Linda was going to move in with her mom, and Ashley would stay with them when she got out of the hospital, which she did. And after that, they all moved out of the house for good, and everything pretty much returned to normal for them. At the time when Linda moved out to her mom's, they were all at their breaking point. They, as a family unit, had disintegrated to almost beyond repair. But now, you know, they were they were great. Linda did try to talk to the family who moved in after them and warn them, but they didn't want to listen and thought, you know, she's just this mentally unstable person. However, they no longer live there and they moved out pretty quickly. And it's been through several different tenants since them. And of course, other paranormal groups have been through and investigated and all the stuff over the years. And once Greg, who's now the president of Paranormal Task Force, he went in to investigate and he only lasted two minutes inside and had to leave. Two? Like TWO? Yes. Damn. Because he said he felt that overwhelming nauseous feeling and he just couldn't breathe. But he went outside, regained his composure, and was able to enter about 30 minutes later and complete the investigation. When he was in the basement doing a session with everyone, they had went back up 
And just him and his wife's cousin were still down there. And they both experienced an atmospheric shift where it was like the air became really thick. And Greg said they had such a hard time breathing. It was as if they were being strangled by a boa constrictor. They couldn't get the feeling to stop. And it just kept increasing to the point where their backs began hurting and their chest grew to an uncomfortable tightness. But suddenly it all just dissipated and they were like, boy, bye. The Screaming House had a lot of things going on and so much so that the Catholic Church issued a 156-page report on the home backing up the claims of its demonic infestation. Now, I will say that I couldn't find the actual scanned pages of this report. Only some typed, like, transcribed things by Stephen himself. I'm not saying that's fake, but I would think that they would scan those pages in, like at least like one, you know, Mm -hmm. but maybe there's like something in that that they say you can't scan them in. I don't know. Never been dealing with the church. So I touched on this earlier about the demon or the entity presenting itself as something else. But Stephen said in that show, A Haunting, that he believes the house is alive, that it's actively thinking. And that's why it presents itself and preys on your darkest fears, like it did with Elliot, his youngest, by being the clown. And Eliza had the biggest fear of her closet. And that's what opened that time, you know, to her. And that's what really scared her. And his biggest fear was not being able to reach his kids if there was an emergency. And so many times, you know, he wouldn't be able to get to his kids. And then finally, like, he would be able to get the door open, which is just scary. Like, to think about something being able to manipulate. Yeah. I don't know. And just, oh, gosh. I, oh, like, Google Ads ain't got nothing on this house. Mm-mm. Well, A little bit more, Stephen was able to research and find out about the land and stuff too. So it's said that the home was built on the land owned by John T. Crow, and he was the first captain of the first Missouri militia in the Civil War. He and his wife lived on the property, but then she passed away suddenly, and then he left soon after. Well, Stephen said that he got some intel from one of the relatives, like, descendant, descendant, descendant of John Crow. Think about the Bible when it's like, begot, 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 begot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's basically, that's it. Well, they confirmed that he did, in fact, own slaves, even though they were listed under his wife's family because they were from Kentucky, and that's like where she was from when they got married. So it was legal there, and that's how they did it. Wow. And where they lived, they were called farmhand kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's fucking semantics. Uh Uh-huh. Technicalities. It's wrong. That's what it is. And this is even more wrong. So, And again, I don't know if any of this is true. This is all what he has said. Okay. Well, apparently, while Captain John was away, wife Mouse will play. And the word on the street was that she had some horizontal dancing lessons with one of the male Farm hands. She got pregnant, and when the baby was born, obviously there was a a discrepancy. Uh huh. 
And so that pissed him off. And okay, I totally wrote this and it's wrong. And I was just trying to lighten up the mood because it's really sad. But I said, it pissed him off. And he was like, I'm the captain and this ain't happen. Oh my God. You should never have told anybody. I know. Well, I said, I'm the captain and this can't happen. So you wrote it and then you couldn't even it deliver up. it right. I fucked it up. Dang. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. And he couldn't be made a fool of. I listened to Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast and they had an interview with Stephen. And he said that Captain John had the doctor puncture his wife's lung so that she died. Holy shit. Like a painful death. Then went outside lined all of the men up and executed them one by one because his wife didn't give up who she had slept with. Well, good for her because that was going to be nothing but torture and awfulness for whoever it was. Yeah. And content warning for child death, he took the baby and hung it in the tree outside. Oh, my God. And that's what she saw. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Stephen said the reason that Captain John did this was to show, don't fuck with me. Like, I'm not to be messed with. Basically, he has nothing left to lose. Oh, like, ooh, I hate, ooh. So, okay, moving on from that. Hmm. Also, the house that became the screaming house, because that house wasn't the house that they lived in, you know, but the actual building was built in 1932, and it was built on the spot that was known as the slave quarters on Captain John's land. Then, right across the street from the Screaming House, there is a woman who brutally murdered her husband with an axe, and then she died by suicide. And then another house down from the Screaming House a man died by suicide in front of his nephew. Mm. There was just a lot of freaking trauma there. So no wonder it's a vortex. All right. And this is just like an aside, kind of an FYI. Linda Marsh, she passed away on December 6, 2013, and she was 66 years old. But Linda became one of the founding members of the Paranormal Task Force. And she also really had a passion about getting laws passed that forced full disclosure of tragic deaths, hauntings, all of that to buyers and renters, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I never thought about renters. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, yes, for buyers, but I never, it, like, it never crossed my mind that it would need to be for a renter, too. Because I guess in my head, you could just, like, as much as you couldn't and as much as I'd be like, oh my God, it's going to follow me around that I like broke a lease. But yeah, you could break a lease more than you could just move out of a house. Right. But if you ain't got no money, you ain't got no money. No, absolutely. So I don't know. I just thought like it really did stick with her. And she, you know, when she tried to help that family after they moved out and, you know, they didn't want to hear anything about it. She really did keep trying and she really was a compassionate person and just kept going but that is the story of the screaming house so thank you so much nana for that recommendation and carrie please don't have child death well 
This story does have a lot of tragedy and a little bit of history, but not in the way of yours. It has a lot of firsts. A lot of firsts? So my story this week actually came from a listener as well. Well, the idea. So thank you so much, Connie M., for sending this in. All right, so the story this week is about a girl named Brenda Spencer. So picture it. We're going to San Diego, Man Diego, Donna, 1979. It's January 29th at about 7 o'clock in the morning, and Brenda tells her dad that she doesn't feel very good and she wants to stay home from school. Because when Brenda starts her menstrual cycle, she gets like really bad cramps and stuff. So I wonder like now if she'd be diagnosed with like PCOS or something, but some sort of dysmenorrhea. Okay, me too, girl. But also, I never knew how to say that word. I'm probably saying it wrong. I just bleed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, for her, it's like really bad. It's really bad cramps. She doesn't feel good. She's lethargic. You know, it's like a it's a really bad case of it. So it wasn't uncommon for every so often her to have to miss school because of it. So on that morning, her dad goes to wake her up for school and she's already up because she doesn't feel good. And she's like, can I please just stay home? I don't feel good. Yada, yada, yada. And he's like, cool, cool. Catch you when I get home. After her dad leaves for work, Brenda's life and the lives of many, many others change forever. Brenda changed her clothes into khakis, a shirt, her favorite lucky little beanie, and she takes her Ruger semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle, takes it to the front of the house, use the butt of the gun to knock out a window pane, and sets the sight to the building across the street. But the building across the street is actually Grover Cleveland Elementary School. Oh, gosh. It was early in the morning before the 830 bell rang for the kids to come into school. They're all waiting outside for the principal to open the gate so that they can go into the school building. When all of a sudden the shots ring out, the kids start scrambling. It sounds like fireworks. They don't know what's going on. Now, I literally said, don't have child death in your thing. The principal at the time was 53-year-old Burton Rag, and he and one of the sixth-grade teachers, Daryl Barnes, they were sitting inside drinking their coffee, getting ready for the day when they heard the shots. The two of them run outside as fast as they can to see what's going on, and they see kids scrambling like ants trying to get away from the shots. Shots are whizzing by them. The principal, Burton Rag, sees this kid who has been shot, and he runs over to the kid to try to pull them to safety, and all of a sudden, he feels the stinging in his chest, and he falls backwards and lands in a nearby bush. The teacher that was with him, Daryl Barnes, he's saving as many kids as he can, getting them all to come inside of the school. He tells the administrative assistant to call the police, and he starts going outside trying to round up more kids. Michael Sakar, who was the school's head custodian, sees that the principal, Mr. Rag, had been shot. And Michael Sakar used to be in the military. So his training kicks in and he runs to save the principal and save as many kids as he can. But 
as he's running to save the principal, Michael gets shot himself. They've called police and police are moving in, but the shots are still ringing out. Kids have been shot in the shoulder, the wrist, the stomach. When finally, 28-year-old Robert Rod, who was the first officer that actually made it to the scene, he actually ends up getting shot in the neck, but that's because a bullet ricochets off of his bulletproof vest. So the police end up commandeering a garbage truck that's down the road and driving it and putting it in front of the school because they realize that the gunfire is coming from across the street. They put this garbage truck in front of the school to protect the kids. As the police officer, Rob, is coming out of the truck, that's when he gets shot because he drove the truck to block the school. He had to climb out the other side. And when they get the truck in front of the school, that's when the shooting stops. The shooting lasted for 20 minutes. 20 minutes? Well, there were journalists who were at the police station when the 911 call came in. And so they knew what was going on. And that journalist was like, hey, this is what's going on. You know, called the newspaper he worked for. Like, hey, this is what's happening right now at the police station. Like, we got to get on this. And they decide to start calling some of the neighbors to say, do you know what's going on? Like, do you know about the shooting in your neighborhood to see if they can get some information quickly? Now, this is, keep in mind, this is the reporters, not the police yet, because they're still trying to stop the fucking shooting. Well, at one point, one of the journalists calls Brenda Spencer's home. And she answers like, hello. And he's like, oh my God, like, this is blah, blah, blah. Do you know about this shooting that's going on in your neighborhood right now? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, oh my God, where is it coming from? And she gives her address. Inside my house. And he's like, wait, don't you live at? Oh my God. Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, she laughs and says, who do you think's doing it? And hangs up. Oh my gosh. Maniacal. So they're like, call her back. So he's like, he calls her back and he's like, wait, so you're doing this? Like what? what, Why? What? What? Why? And she says, quote, I just did it for the fun of it. I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. I have to go now. I shot a pig. That's what she calls policeman. I shot a pig, I think, and I want to shoot more. I'm having too much fun. Okay. Just how you read that. (laughs) I don't know. Like, that's, like, how nonchalant she was. I know, I can't. She's like, I don't ha- I don't like Mondays. This will liven up the day. What in the actual fuck? When was this again? 19- 1979. Okay, 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 okay. That might make more sense for the... The pigs. The pigs. The, like, yeah, the terminology. Like, it'll liven up the day. You know, like, I was like, what? Yeah. Who uses that lingo? Also, who answers again after you've, like, told on yourself? She also told the journalist that she liked looking for the kids in the, like, red, white, and blue jackets because she liked to see the feathers fly from the jackets. Also, I do want to say I'm sorry that I actually gave the wrong police officer the credit for driving the truck. It was actually Ted 
Kasanak that drove the truck. But Robert Robb was the police officer who had gotten shot while he was helping the kids. So my apologies for that. In total, Brenda had shot eight kids and one police officer who were all wounded, but all survived. Wow. And the two men, Burton Rag, the school principal, and Michael Sukar, the custodian, were the two that succumbed to their wounds and died. Bless it. Once the shooting was over, Brenda barricaded herself into the house and a standoff ensued. Police came, SWAT team came, and they started trying to negotiate with her. They would try to call her. They would talk to her on the bullhorn. And whenever they finally got in touch with her, she was like, can you please stop that with the bullhorn? It's really getting on my nerves. Like, ma'am, I don't give a fuck what's on your fucking nerves. Right? You just shut up a fucking school. The standoff ended up lasting six hours. And she finally agreed to surrender once they promised her a Burger King meal. She said she wanted a Whopper. She also told police that she wanted to be handcuffed and taken away in handcuffs. She wanted the whole experience. Exactly. And she had even asked, too, like, is this going to be on the news? Like, a report, like, and they're like, are reporters here? Uh, well, the reporter called you, honey, and you, you quoted. So police made her come out, put the gun on the lawn, and then go back and get her extra ammunition and bring that back out too and she was gone for a little while like five minutes when she went back in and nobody's really sure what she did in that five minutes but when police arrested her and went in to inspect the home it was in disarray i've kind of seen some variations on exactly what they found but i do know that they found one half-empty bottle of whiskey. Some stuff said there were beer cans strewn about, but we do know for sure there was one half-empty bottle of whiskey. So Brenda Spencer committed the very first school shooting in American history. Wow. And it was only, I think, the second mass shooting, and then the fact that it was done by a 16-year-old female was pretty unheard of. Yeah. Even now, most school shootings are committed by males. So the fact that she was not only the first, but she was a female, made this case a case of firsts in the worst possible way. The other thing is that she was one of the first ever charged as an adult, as a 16-year-old. Because if she would have been charged as a juvenile, then she would be able to get out of prison when she was like 23. But Brenda knew that there was a chance that she could get the death penalty. So what she ended up doing was pleading guilty to two counts of murder and one count of assault with a deadly weapon. So she ended up being sentenced to 25 years to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about Brenda. And why she put on khakis. Well, yeah. When Brenda was around 10 years old, her parents divorced. Her parents were pretty polar opposites when it came to just their personalities. The mom was a little more outgoing. The dad was a little more introverted and quiet. And according to Brenda's mom, Dot, Brenda's dad, Wallace, 
started having affairs. And one day he asked her, hey, like, if I just left for a year, like, could I still come back? And apparently he had already rented an apartment and everything. And he just like wanted to be able to just leave his life for a year and come back. And she was like, no, and filed for divorce pretty immediately. Now, again, that's all Dot's side of the story. Well, once they got divorced, Brenda's older brother and sister wanted to live with their father. Some people said it's because their dad was more easygoing, less rules than Dot. And so they were able to, going to be able to get away with more, you know, no curfew. It's fine if you drink, you know, that kind of thing. And so they wanted to live with Wallace. Now, Dot will tell you, when she calls you at home, that it's because he basically brainwashed them to live with him just to hurt her. Of course. And the truth is somewhere in there. Right. Well, and again, in a bad divorce like that, like everybody's, well, in a divorce period, people are always, in, hell, in an, the end of a relationship, people are always going to twist things to suit their narrative. Whether it's malicious or not, it's their perception of what happened. Yeah. Because you're always the victim in your own story. Well, since the two older kids wanted to go live with Wallace, the judge didn't want to split the kids up, and so he got custody of all three. So after the divorce, Wallace and the three kids moved into a new house across the street from Grover Cleveland Elementary School, and Dot stayed in the other house. The relationship between Brenda and Dot wasn't great. It didn't start out that way. But eventually, the further out from the divorce they got, you know, Brenda kind of started changing. She had gone from a little more outgoing to very introverted like her dad. You know, she was a kid that loved animals and I think was a little misunderstood just because she liked more loner type activities. She liked to read. She liked to do photography. She liked animals. She liked to do kind of single person hobbies. Yeah. And so I think she was pretty misunderstood when it came to that. Yeah. All of those are good. That was me. Is me. Well, like I said, as we progress further out from the divorce, Brenda's behavior did start to change and she did become more isolated. She started hanging out more with her dad. She really only had one friend. Again, she's just very misunderstood. And She and her dad were basically buddies. They would go hiking together. They would go out into the woods and practice shooting together, like use beer cans for targets, that kind of thing. And she was actually, as much as I hate to be like, well, she was actually a really good shot. Like she was pretty well known for being a really good shot. Her dad and her would go to shooting ranges and, you know, all the things you do. I don't know. With this couple... And, I mean, again, they were like, man, she's like, especially for her age, but just kind of also period, she's excelling at this. Mm -hmm. Well, eventually her time with her mom started getting less and less and less. Dot kind of left it up to Brenda when Brenda wanted to hang out. So Brenda was like, no, man, I'm cool. Because she's turned into a teenager, you know, that kind of pre-teenage. And she's like, yeah, if my mom's not going to make me hang out with her, I'm not going to fucking hang out with her. (laughs) Yes. And so... There was a lot that Dot just didn't know about her. Dot seemed to be pretty absent, like, just in general to Brenda's life. Like, when the police called her... Okay, so Dot was an accountant for this golf course. 
And when the police called her to be like, hey, um, your daughter's been involved in this mass shooting and we've arrested her. Like, we need you to come down. She was like, um, well, I actually can't right now because I have all this money on my desk because I'm doing the books. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like, no, you drop what you're fucking doing and you get down here. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of thing. She's just very self-absorbed in that way. There's a lot of issues with mental health across the board in this story. Dot feels like one of those people where she's a very toxic mother, where it's she does these things like that, but in her mind, she's this wonderful, attentive mother, and it's like, no, you're fucking toxic. Mm-hmm. Well, around this time, Brenda had started missing more school. She had started letting her grades slip. And eventually, in early of 78, she'd missed so much school that they actually sent her to like an alternative school for at-risk kids. So when she was at this school, she met a friend that was a couple of years younger than her, and he was just a really bad influence, for lack of a better word. I mean, she had her own shit, don't get me wrong, but he just kind of like brought it out of her. They just had that friendship where they fed off of each other's trauma and issues, and it just grew to be kind of the downfall for both of them. They got in some trouble together where they had robbed a couple of places. And she even was arrested at one point for using a BB gun to shoot out the windows of Grover Cleveland Elementary. Say what? Yes. Say what? Right. Well, while she was at this school for kids who are at risk, one of the teacher staff was like, man... I really think that she has some serious issues with depression, and I really think that she might be suicidal. They even pretty much insisted to Wallace that it would be a good idea for her to be admitted into some sort of treatment center to get help for these suicidal ideations and her depression. But Wallace was like, "Mm, no, she's fine. She doesn't need that. Well, and together with her friend, they had developed this hatred towards all authority figures, but more specifically, police. Because the little friend's stepdad was a police officer. And so that was how his hatred manifested, that he in turn taught to Brenda. I'm sorry, you mean pigs? Yeah. Ugh! So... Brenda would actually tell people that she would love to, quote, blow a police officer's head off. And, you know, here's the thing now. If a kid told that to one of their friends nowadays, somebody would have reported her. Oh, for sure. I mean, obviously there's exceptions. Some people are scared and all of that. But for the most part, kids nowadays have gone through enough training, unfortunately, with school shootings and mass shootings in general and have learned that that's not normal behavior and that should be reported. But back in 1979 and 78, who the fuck knew anything about this? Mm -hmm. She was the first person to do a school shooting. Right. And one of the first to do any form of mass shooting. So this was not behavior that people just thought it was weird. Mm -hmm. People didn't think it was red flags. Right. Hell now, if she said that to one of her friends, someone else would be doing a freaking TikTok and catch her on it later or right. Snapchat, and that'd be all around the school. You know, right? and someone would turn that in. Right. 
Well, that year for Christmas, Wallace got Brenda that rifle for Christmas and 500 rounds of ammunition. Well, later, Brenda did say that she wanted a radio for Christmas, not a rifle, but her dad got her a rifle anyway. And she does later say that she thinks that he got her the rifle instead of the radio because she felt like he wanted her to die by suicide. But also... At the beginning, when all this shit first went down, she said she wanted the rifle for Christmas. So, it's like, the narrative changes the further out we get from the incident. Well, honestly, though, it could be, I don't know, it could be two things. Because it could be she's more introspective and looking at it. And I'm not saying she's right. Yeah, but no. Because, not on that for sure. Because not only did her dad say... Like, no, she wanted this rifle. I mean, which, I mean, hello. If that was the case, he could be lying. But her siblings also said, no, she wanted that for Christmas. Yeah. Here's the thing, too, though. Brenda was known to make stories up. So she would brag about having these fights with different drug dealers and talk about all these drugs that she was on. And her brother was like, I mean, she smoked pot sometimes, but she didn't do any harder drugs. But she would say that she did, like, serious drugs. And then, again, she told some of her classmates that she'd gotten in a fight with a drug dealer and, like, split his head wide open during the fight. And so it's like, yeah, but you you didn't. You'd be dead if you did that to a drug dealer, you know? Not to mention the fact that at the time of her arrest, she was 5'1 and 90 pounds. Ma'am, no, you didn't. But there were also stories around the neighborhood as all this came out that made her sound like a really terrible person, like said that she had set a cat's tail on fire and all this stuff. But it's like, no, she didn't like, she really loved animals. Right. Again, there's just so many stories, but she really did love animals and stuff. She did not have those sociopath tendencies like hurting animals. But what she did have was a head injury. Oh shit. She got in a bike wreck, I think it was a bike wreck, where she hit her head on this pole. And it knocked her unconscious, and she was sick for like a solid 24 hours after it, but they never took her to the doctor. And she ended up developing seizures along her frontal lobe, which the frontal lobe is part of like your impulse control. And that's one of the last things to develop in us, which is why teenagers and just kids before the age of 20 are so fucking impulsive because their frontal lobe is still developing, which is why we have the drinking age the way we do and all of that, because their brain is still developing. What's our excuse? Mine and yours, I mean. For what part? I need you to be more specific. I got a lot wrong with me. <laughs> Impulsivity. Oh, well, I have ADHD. I can't help it. <laughs> you, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with you. A Leo. Oh, Jesus, Mary and fucking Joseph. Well, that friend that was such a bad influence on her had finally moved out of the neighborhood, and they didn't see each other very often, but they did see each other the Saturday before the shooting. And she had said that she was going to do something big to get on TV. And again, now, if you had a friend that you were like, oh, we're going to kill police officers, and we're going to do this, and and they were like, I'm going to do something big, you'd be like, oh, wait, what? Well, I was just kidding. Like, you, what you gonna do, you know? Because the friend said that it was all talk that he thought, but then 
she apparently like really went with it. Later, Brenda says that she has no memory of the event and that she's on PCP and drunk when the shooting happened. Now, there was that half-empty bottle of whiskey. Now, we know that her dad had been an alcoholic, and he, at the time, was sober. So that there was no alcohol in the house other than that one bottle. But when they did a toxicology on her and, like, blood alcohol, all the things, she was completely clean. There was no drugs, and there, were no, there was no alcohol in her system. So that's fucking bullshit. But what she tried to say was that she was, now this is later, but she tried to say that she was drunk and had a lethal amount of drugs in her system. So she was hallucinating and thinking that she was seeing like combat people, her words, crawling across the yard. And that's who she was trying to shoot, not the kids. But it's like, um, okay, well, first of all, you're a really good shot and the only people that you killed were the adults and she shot the kids like basically all in ways that wouldn't kill them like a wrist, a shoulder, unless you're fucking Selena, you know, like all of these different ways that they like basically wouldn't die. And when the truck, when that garbage truck was pulled up, the shot stopped. So it was like, clearly that was your intended target because when it was blocked, you stopped shooting. So if it was really combat people crawling up your yard, they wouldn't have stopped when a fucking garbage truck blocked the school. Well, Brenda has actually been up for parole a few times now. In 2001, she was up for parole. And this was probably one of the bigger moments because some stuff kind of came to light that we kind of knew, but it was also kind of a curveball. So the house that she lived in with her dad was a three-bedroom house. And again, two older siblings. So at first, Brenda shared a room with her dad. But she says now, in 2001, that they actually slept in the same bed. What? Yeah. And also, Carrie, this is the third story. I know. Blame the amazing listeners that are sending these Fucking stories into us. You it were cherry picking them. You are cherry picking them. So she says in 2001 that her dad would, okay, she ended up saying basically rape me. Like those were her words. And so the guy interviewing her was like, what do you mean? But she says that her dad from the ages of seven to 14 would molest her. And physically abuse her. Punch her in the face. Punch her in the ribs. This is the only time this has ever come out. That this happened. But she said that, again, he raped her. He sodomized her. And that they had to share the same bed. But eventually, he did agree to an interview and said, No, we shared a room at first, but we had our own separate beds. But like when they interviewed him... Because it was like the only interview that he had ever done, finally, for a news organization. And you can see this on YouTube. But when they tell him, he's like, she said what? Like, I don't know. He never really denied it. Like, it was like, what did she say? Uh, that never happened. If my child whom I still went to see every single Saturday in prison from the time she was arrested... 
He went every single Saturday. It was like a, it's like a five hour round trip to get to the prison. Every single fucking Saturday. And they just said that you molested them when you didn't. Like, I felt like there would have been a bigger reaction. Like, wait, what? No. Oh, my God. No. You know, like, there was no. It was just like, what'd she say? Nah, that didn't happen. You know, it was just very, like, it didn't feel genuine. Right. It was too nonchalant. Right. Now, was it something that maybe they had talked about? That, hey, say this and let's see if we can get you out of prison earlier? I don't fucking know. But but he needed to be more on script then. Right. And it's worth noting, before she was sentenced, she was in juvie until she was sentenced and sent to an adult prison. And she was sentenced when she was 18. So her cellmate was a 17-year-old named Sheila McCoy. And Sheila was a kid who had some issues like running away and that kind of thing. And so that's why she was in juvie. And after she got out, she actually got pregnant by Wallace Spencer, 17-year-old Sheila McCoy. I'm sorry. Right. And, like, basically to avoid prosecution kind of thing of statutory rape, Mm -hmm. he married her. Mm -hmm. And it is said that she looked so much like Brenda that people thought that she had gotten out of prison when they saw Sheila at the house. What? Ew. Right. Well, after Sheila had the baby, she just like ditched the baby and left it with Wallace and moved out. So I could not find anything on Sheila. I know. I could not find anything on Sheila. I tried to look her up to see what she looked like. I couldn't fucking find her. So if y'all find her, like post a picture because I don't know what she, I can't, I couldn't find her. And one of the videos I watched on YouTube even talked about, like, even had an interview off camera with Sheila and Wallace's daughter. And she denied any, like, inappropriate touching and all of that. But it was weird because it almost, like, one thing was that Brenda would, like, stroke her dad's hair. Like, I don't know, just how how it was worded. It almost made it sound like it was her fault because, like, almost like she made a move on her dad. I don't know. It was very weird mm-hmm. how it was worded. And that's not what they meant, but it was like yeah. she would stroke his hair, blah, blah, blah. And so I think that they were speaking more to their kind of bizarre dynamic. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it just gave me out. Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, also in 2005, Brenda said, Actually, my dad was really drunk and kicked me in the head when I was 14, and it wasn't a bicycle accident, so he made me make that up. So again, it's like, later on down the road, the narrative's changing to make her look more like a victim and less like the girl who said, you know, I just don't like Mondays, you know? And so it's like, is this, she's getting to the point where she's accepting things and she's processing or is she trying to get out of prison? And so she's trying to make herself look more like a victim to garner sympathy to get out. Or, are they, like I said, are these things that actually happened to her that she's working through trauma because now she's been in prison so long she has nothing else to do but work through the trauma? I don't like her. No, fuck no. She's a, she's terrible. Absolutely. For what she did. Oh, absolutely. But when even I was... Already like, well, you know what? She might have wanted the radio. And you're like, no, everyone said it. Look, I can tell you that I 
I would be like, I really want this, and everyone would know. But then I'd be like, actually, Mama, I really want a radio, but no one else is going to know that after I've been like, I really want this, I really want this, I really want this, I really want this. But the one who's going to buy it for me, yeah, I'd be like, hey, I really want the radio, but if he don't want me to have it, or like, you know what I mean? Yeah. If whatever. Well, they don't. They don't know. Well, also though, but it fits with. Their pastimes. I mean, they went like the things that they enjoyed doing together was going out shooting. So right. it's not, it's not like it's a gift out of left field for this family who oh, owns sure. no guns, who blah blah blah, and it's all of a sudden like here's a gun. Now, was it fucking irresponsible to buy your child a gun that the school had already told you was having suicidal ideations? Yeah, that's fucking inappropriate. But again, not to be like. Oh, well, it was 1979, but it was fucking 1979. Oh, for sure. People didn't understand mental health as it related to kids and those suicidal ideations and, and, and fucking literally no concept of mass shooting, too. So it's like, he just didn't know. Right. Well, I'm not saying it about that. So if all of this is true about the relationship part, whatever, if she was trying to, like, maybe she didn't want that and maybe... She didn't know how to, like, rectify it. And maybe she was just trying to push that away. You know, and like, no, I really want the, I want the radio. Like, I don't, I don't want that. You know what I mean? Maybe. I'm not saying that this wouldn't have happened had she not had it. Like, she wanted to do something. And, and she's maybe responsible this, for her own actions, yes, too. And maybe this was her way of, I mean, she's a terrible human being. But, like, just, like, fucking up, well, everyone else's life that, because it wasn't just hers, but like fucking up her life and getting it out, like getting her life away from what she was in. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like she didn't know what to do, but I'm a good shot. Like you said, she didn't kill the kids. I mean, trauma is trauma and I will never understand all of that. But I was like, no, Donna, mm -mm. you're going way too deep. You're doing all of that. However, then you said that thing about Sheila Looking just like her uh -huh. and all of that. And then I was like, mm -mm, you weren't going too deep, Donna. I don't think so. I'm not giving her an out by any means, but there's definitely some truth to that. Yeah. Well, and again, you're responsible for your own actions. Yes. There are millions of people who are kids and adults that have fucking shitty ass parents that neglect Unfortunately. them. Yeah, but that neglect them and abuse them mm -hmm. physically, mentally, sexually, financially, all the things. Mm -hmm. And they don't shoot children. They oh, don't for sure. shoot up a school. So ultimately it doesn't fucking matter. You can try to say that, oh, it's because of this. And you know, they even tried to say it was because of the head injury because she has this frontal lobe epilepsy. And the epilepsy community was like, uh, absolutely not. Right. Do not put that on this diagnosis because mm -hmm. there are tons of people who have epilepsy and it does not cause you to be violent. And so they're like, um, absolutely not. Don't do that. And so they kind of backed off of that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not trying to put that on that. I'm not trying to, I'm just saying, I do believe that something was going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And again, she went from this like big talking, I was on PCP, I was on alcohol, I beat up drug dealers, all this stuff, to now at the, you know, 2000 whatever hearing, parole hearing, she's like, I don't remember any of it. I don't, you know what? I don't remember any of it. I was fucked up. And she'll also say that like she wanted to go to trial, like she tried to 
withdraw her guilty plea and go back to trial years later because she said that there was a toxicology report that actually showed that she did have lethal levels of drugs in her system and then she added alcohol on top of it. And it's like, well, if it's lethal, why didn't you die? And I mean, I know not all lethal levels kill people, but you get the point. And I'm sorry, and that there's no way that you had one toxicology well, I shouldn't say there's no way because stuff is shady and whatever. But I don't know. It's not working, girl. It ain't working. Because she also, after this parole hearing, wrote her attorney a letter being like, that was her attorney during all of it at the beginning that was like, thank you so much for everything you did. But if you really thought that he didn't use this toxicology report that he should have used and all of that, like, why would you do that? Why would you be like, thank you for all you did for me? You know, you'd be like, no, you didn't fucking, there was a toxicology report showing I had lethal levels of this shit and you didn't present it to the court and now I'm in jail forever. You know, no. And not to mention what she's saying now is completely different than the answer she gave immediately to the hostage negotiator and to the reporter. I do want to say that the house was in just kind of a disarray when the police got in there and so... She also was gone for like five minutes in between putting the gun out and the ammunition. So there's no telling what she hid. But I did listen to one podcast that was talking about how, because the night before she had gone out to air quote around getting get her hunting clothes out or get all of her dirty clothes out of the her dad's van. Basically, when she did that, she gathered up all his ammunition because that's where he kept it. And she had like 700 rounds that she had taken from him. And then... When it was all over, there were only like 400 rounds left. So, stands to reason, she fired 300 shots. There are 300 rounds. But they didn't find all those shell casings and stuff in there. So, it's like, did she ditch them? Like, did she flush them? Did she whatever? I don't know. Like, did she throw them away? Because they even said, like, you know, they knew it was her. They didn't do this serious crime scene in the house, like looking for everything. Like they just kind of were like, oh, here's a few. They only found like 30 shell casings. So they're like, okay, she only fired like 38 shots and she hit 11 times. So some people say she fired 300 shots, but the consensus on basically all of the articles is it was like 38 to 40 rounds. At her parole hearing in 2011, family members from the two murder victims spoke and some of the kids actually spoke too, because again, you know, it's 2001 now, this 30 years. That's wild. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're adults now. Yeah. You know, and they talked about the nightmares that they had, the counseling that they had. One of the kids, they said that there were just bullets like whizzing by and that like bullets would like pass in between the kids' legs. And that like this one little girl, she was actually saved because she was carrying a notebook that had a pouch you know you could put a pouch in like a like a binder Mm -hmm. it had a like a pouch of pens and stuff and that's like what stopped the bullet wow just stuff like that you know it's like i just picture like how you carry like Mm -hmm. a trapper keeper like against your chest if that's where she was carrying it that was a aim to kill shot right so it's like did she really try to not kill the kids i don't know brenda who now identifies as a lesbian had been in a like prison romance that had ended poorly, and she took a um, oh god safety pin, oh, heated no. it up, and branded the words "courage" and "pride" across her chest. But then, at the parole hearing, when they asked her about it, 
she said, that isn't what it said. I don't know. It was just weird. But they're like, all in all, she's been a pretty model inmate. But again, like Mr. Rag's daughter said in one of the interviews, she's like, yeah, she can be a perfect inmate when all she has to do is go to work, go eat, and go to bed. Like, yeah, of course she's good. I mean, what else is there? You know, I mean, it's like, it's not that hard to be good when you're that structured. The parole hearing ended in 2001. And although it usually takes a couple of hours for them to deliberate, it took them 15 minutes. Wow. And they denied her parole. So basically, she was up for parole again 10 years later. And she was like, yeah, I don't want to do this, actually. Like, she canceled the hearing. And she is up for parole again September 2021. Oh, wow. Like, next month. Oh, Brenda. Her dad ended up dying at, like, the age of 87. And, you know, we'll never know if... With, I mean, we'll never know what the truth is. Right. But again, it doesn't matter. What matters is there were dozens of kids who are completely traumatized by this event, some that are physically wounded, a police officer that was wounded, and two men who lost their lives because this girl hated Mondays. It's like, I think it's important to understand the trauma because, you know, of the perpetrators, because it does help us in the future, i.e. we understand all the red flags that she exhibited and that are typical of someone who may be a mass shooter like this. I mean, you know, when you look at all the previous school shootings and stuff, if they sometimes they had some of the same behaviors. And so it's like, okay, we're learning from it. It's important to recognize the behaviors and the traumas. You know when to report so you can understand and maybe try to curtail this. But it doesn't change the fact that it doesn't mean she should get parole just because, oh, it came out that you actually, you were assaulted by your your dad. Like, Again, I want to recognize the trauma, and she's still a human being, that she still has to deal with that. She still has to deal with that on her own, but that doesn't change the fact or should be allowing her to get out of prison earlier just because that happened to her. Right. Because, again, there are millions of people in this world whose parents have done that to them, and they don't end up killing people. Yeah, 100% agree. Well, she started a trend that I hate. She Yeah, and she even said, like, every time there's a, sco- a school shooting, she blames herself. Like, she, basically, because she started it. Yeah. But, like, don't give yourself that much credit, girl. Well, I'm sorry. This just has to be said that... Her- if you say it's your fucking birthday month. Well, no. I wasn't going to bookend it. But her principal was named Mr. Rag. But it's W-R-A-G-G. It doesn't matter. It's Mr. Rag. And she used her period as her excuse. Donna. I'm just saying. Why is that even what people call that? I don't know. I mean, I guess because you use a rag. People used to use a rag for the head. (laughs) Gross. (sighs) Like, that just is the worst word for that on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you might as well say moist. <laughs> like, that's a terrible word, you know? Yeah. I don't hate moist unless I'm talking about meat. I like a dry. Where Carrie chokes. <laughs> True story. <laughs> At Thanksgiving. She's like, <coughs> I'm like, this turkey's great. 
She's not lying. <laughs> I know. Truth story. Well, I hope y'all ain't just me because I'm Leo and it's my birthday month. <laughs> oh my God. Y'all. No, seriously, we hope y'all enjoyed this episode. As much as you can enjoy it, but thank y'all so much for the recommendations. Hey, and why don't I interrupt you one more time? Hey, it's okay. I have done it a lot this episode. I'm so sorry. You're an Aries. Well, because I have to say things when they're in my brain. Uh Uh-huh. What's in your brain right now? Hurry up. (laughs) (laughs) But for real, thank y'all so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on all the places that you listen to your podcast and, you know, drop us a little review if it's good. Just kidding. Not so much. But for real, thank you all so much for supporting us. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.